Hartford VOA News. This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castillo. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America. On this edition of the program, China versus the United States. What resulted from the three-hour Biden-Xi virtual summit at the end of November? Hello again, I'm Carol Castiel. According to VOA's Ralph Jennings, at the conference, Chinese President Xi Jinping defended China's sovereignty and suggested cooperation, while U.S. President Joe Biden urged reducing the risk of conflict and called out Xi on human rights as well as the fate of Taiwan. Jennings reports that the U.S. government sees China as a strategic competitor as Beijing seeks to grow its military and economic influence well offshore. The two sides have clashed over trade with $550 billion in goods subject to higher tariffs now than in 2018 and technology secrets as well as regional military flashpoints. Both powers have sent warships to the Taiwan Strait and the South China Sea. VOA's Jeff Selden reports that Washington and Beijing are in early stages of discussions that could eventually tamp down military tensions, but that China's seriousness will have to be tested. This in the wake of the Pentagon concluding that the size of the Chinese nuclear arsenal may triple by 2030 to upward of 1,000 warheads. The New York Times reports that the administration is concerned not only about the number of weapons, but also the new technology and particularly how Chinese nuclear strategists are thinking about non-traditional arms. The Chinese launched a hypersonic missile in July, circling the globe once and then deploying a maneuverable glide vehicle. Well, joining us to discuss the U.S.-China relationship as tensions grow are two regional experts. Richard Fontaine is CEO of the Center for a New American Security, and that's a policy group based in Washington. Prior to CNAS, he was foreign policy advisor to Senator John McCain and worked at the State Department, the National Security Council, and on the staff of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And Dean Chang, he is senior research fellow at the Asian Studies Center at the Washington-based Heritage Foundation. Dean Chang specializes in Chinese political and security affairs. And both gentlemen join me via Microsoft Teams. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having us. Well, Dean Chang, let me start with you. Let's start with this virtual summit. How do you read the significance of that meeting? Did it do some good? I think that the summit really didn't achieve very much, which is not surprising. Both the Chinese and American sides work very hard to downplay expectations. Having a conversation between the two top leaders is generally a good thing, although history does record some really bad examples, such as the Kennedy-Khrushchev summit in Vienna in 1960. I would suspect that this summit is more than anything else, just simply an effort at making sure lines of communications are open between the two sides. Richard Fontaine, uh, an attempt to just keep the lines of communication open didn't really achieve much. How do you read it? Well, I think the administration went in with two goals. One was that, the increase in lines of communications between the two leaders, in part because their move from collective rule to one-man rule in China means that unless you're talking to the top leader, you can't be always sure how many messages are being received by whom and how they're being passed along. So keeping the line of communication 
communication up with Xi Jinping, I think was one aspect of what the administration was trying to achieve. But I think the other one was to start talking about what the administration calls guardrails on the competition between the United States and China. I think they've accepted that the U.S.-China competition won't be based on engagement, but rather on competition well into the future. But in order to prevent that competition from generating crisis or even conflict, there need to be some forms of guardrails, particularly around issues like nuclear weapons and delivery vehicles. So this was not a way of talking about those things, but rather talking about talking about those things, talking about putting into place some sort of process by which the two sides could discuss what the administration called strategic stability. And it appears that there was conceptually an agreement to that, but the Chinese have been very hesitant in the past to have any meaningful talks about those things. So how this will actually materialize, or if it will, remains to be seen. Indeed, strategic stability is a term that the administration is using, but it will be interesting to see how Xi Jinping sees it. So back to you, Dean Cheng. Let's take a look at some of the most contentious issues, particularly vis-a-vis Taiwan, perhaps China's aggressive actions in the South China Sea, military buildup, Hong Kong. How do you see these contentious issues, which Xi Jinping characterized as playing with fire, at least with regard to the U.S. position vis-a-vis Taiwan. Let's start with Taiwan. From the Chinese perspective, as they have long said, this is an internal affair. The U.S. is only making the situation worse by not completely breaking off relations with Taiwan, halting arms sales, etc. The problem here is that Beijing has lost most of its credibility in terms of the believability of a peaceful resolution to the Taiwan Straits based on their relationship with Hong Kong. For decades, the Chinese said, oh, Hong Kong is going to be one country to systems. But as we've seen the last several years, the Chinese behavior towards Hong Kong now is you are part of our system and your system basically is subordinate to ours and we'll break rules, break agreements when we need to. If that hasn't basically destroyed any confidence in Taiwan on prospects of reunification, I'm not sure what would. In the last several weeks, we have now seen larger than ever Chinese Air Force, PLA Air Force strike packages go into the Taiwan air defense identification zone, increasing tension. As Richard said, the hope of the summit was to talk about guardrails, but Chinese behavior is in fact exceeding guardrails, speed limits, strike package sizes, really marking new territory in terms of how harshly China is approaching Taiwan. We see similar actions along the Sino-Indian border in the South China Sea, and now, of course, in this hypersonic slash outer space arenas. So all of this is suggesting that China is much more aggressive, taking a much harder line on Taiwan, but also towards a number of its neighbors on issues of territorial sovereignty and what it considers its core interests. Richard Fontaine, I'd like to get your view with regard to the status of Taiwan. Dean Cheng makes a very good point that while Xi Jinping talks about the United States posture vis-a-vis Taiwan, that it's playing with fire at the same time, the way Xi Jinping has been dealing with Hong Kong, this repressive actions toward the city, even though the basic law says that Hong Kong has much more autonomy. How do you see the situation on Taiwan? Did they come closer to any type of consensus or at least a consensus on trying to reach a consensus? 
Well, if you're talking about they being the president of the United States and President Xi of China, the answer is absolutely not. There's no consensus and there will be no consensus. The Chinese consider Taiwan a rogue province that needs to be brought back into the fold. And of course, the United States has longstanding ties to Taiwan. Policy and law requires the support of Taiwan in many respects. And I think multiple administrations are committed to Taiwan in a variety of ways. So Taiwan is the flashpoint. There will not be any agreement between the United States and China on Taiwan. But the situation is changing even beneath those kinds of longstanding realities. As Dean said, anyone on Taiwan who watched the experience of Hong Kong over the past couple of years cannot walk away with anything other than a feeling of potentially fear as to what would actually happen to the political system of Taiwan if there ever was a so-called peaceful reunification. So any remaining flickers of support for that idea in Taiwan seem to have been snuffed out by the Hong Kong experience. And the real question that is probably in the head of Chinese leaders and no one else is, will they tolerate the status quo, which is what the United States would like to see obtained indefinitely into the future, with Taiwan retaining its quasi-de facto status, but not a de jure status of independence? Will they allow that to continue indefinitely, or will they one day wake up and decide that that's so intolerable that they're not going to tolerate it anymore? They're going to take some sort of decisive action, potentially including force, in order to upend the status quo and try to bring Taiwan back into the That's where a real U.S.-China clash would almost inevitably happen. But the direction of that remains, as I said, I think more in the heads of the Chinese leaders than anyone else at this point. Indeed, that's rather chilling, but we'll have to see uh, how that's going to play out. Back to you, Dean Chang. Of course, we also know that Xi Jinping is not too happy about some new alliances, the so-called AUKUS alliance that the United States has entered into with the U.K. and Australia to assert themselves in the Indo-Pacific to counter Chinese influence. And also, of course, the Quad, which is a very important alliance, including Japan, India, the United States and Australia. Does Xi Jinping have a point that these alliances are somehow threatening? Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party more broadly see China as re-emerging. The China dream of Xi Jinping is the great revival of the Chinese people. China is not a rising power the way Germany was in the 1800s. It is a returning power in their view. And from Xi Jinping's perspective and the CCP's perspective, the problem is that the West in particular is not prepared to accept this return of China. And so whether it is the Quad, whether it is AUKUS, all of these are efforts at constraining China at, in a sense, keeping China down. And keeping in mind here that it's not just military. The EU is now working on coming up with a multi-billion euro infrastructure fund to counter BRI. From Xi Jinping's perspective, what is that? That is an effort by European powers, who had also, of course, oppressed China during its century of humiliation, at preventing China from establishing a broader set of economic ties, a broader set of political ties, again, to keep China down. That is part of what is also animating their view about American ties to Taiwan, that this is not simply American support for the KMT dating back to 1949, that this is an active effort to keep China weak by keeping parts of China out of the hands of the CCP. It's also why the Chinese leadership is so touchy about issues like Xinjiang and the Uyghurs. Again, it is not about human rights. It's actually about undermining the authority of the CCP, if you were to ask Xi Jinping and other senior Chinese leaders. 
fascinating. And of course, the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, Dean, you referenced. Let me turn back to Richard Fontaine for your take. Richard, Dean answered the question by basically stepping back and characterizing Xi Jinping's leadership, saying that China is returning to the world stage sort of after his predecessor. And of course, he seems to be channeling Mao Zedong. But let me get your take on how she sees his leadership, the CCP reemerging, and that any type of effort such as the Quad or the AUKUS alliance or the EU's efforts to combat the so-called Belt and Road Initiative, China, how that really is playing into his leadership of China. Well, certainly Xi Jinping has articulated a case for China's return to the regional and the world stage. And in fact, China has returned to the regional and the world stage. It is a superpower now, but the character of that superpower is what is sort of all important in the minds of the rest of the world, how it acts, what its intentions are, what it does, what it wants. And Xi Jinping appears to have a vision for China that is commensurate with his vision for the West, which is that China's day is here. China is rising in power. The West, particularly the United States, with its fractious democracy and its inability to sort of hold on to its prerogatives is declining. And so the world is going to adjust inevitably to the reality of increased Chinese influence, if not dominance, of the Indo-Pacific region and ultimately to the ascendance of Chinese power globally. And that the the efforts by the United States and by the West to form alliances and make issues of internal affairs in China and so forth are sort of the last gasp grabs of the West who can't tolerate the decline in its status and power relative to China. I think that that's wrong on a number of accounts, but it also helps to explain something of a mystery in Chinese foreign policy over the past year and a half or so. I mean, there's always been this sort of thought experiment in policy circles. You know, what if the United States exited the global stage for a little while and China was there? And, you know, what kind of superpower would they be? What kind of global leadership would they show? And in fact, during the coronavirus period, there was something of that experiment run with the United States so incredibly divided at home and focused inwardly and so forth. And so China had the opportunity to sort of show the world what Chinese leadership would look like. And in the space of about a year, it simultaneously alienated India by getting into a border skirmish, the Japanese by stepping up activities around the Senkakus, Australia by economic coercion, the Canadians by taking two Canadian nationals hostages, Europeans by sanctioning European politicians. You can sort of go around the world that did it all kind of at the same time. And as a result, things like the Quad Leaders Meetings or AUKUS are possible today, even though they would not have been possible even a year or two ago, probably. And so as much as we'd like to chalk this up to skillful American diplomacy and everything else, there's a big part of this where the Chinese, because of their behavior and the perceived intentions of them, are starting to foment this coalition building to balance their power in the Asian region and more generally. We'll have more in just a moment, but first, you're listening to Encounter on The Voice of America. My guests are Richard Fontaine, from whom you just heard. He's CEO of the Center for a New American Security, and Dean Chang. He's Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation's Asian Studies Center. We're discussing points of contention in the U.S.-China relationship. This is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on our website at voanews.com slash encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel VOA. Here's a shout out to a very loyal listener and Facebook fan, Ibrahim Abba, 
He writes to us from Zaria, Nigeria. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to encounter at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. Well, Dean Cheng mentioning Nigeria reminds me of the influence of China, of course, all over Africa, but that will have to be reserved for another program. But let me get you to react to what is seen as a potential nuclear buildup for the first time. The United States is now trying to get China's leadership to talk about its nuclear capability, which is a relatively new aspect to the U.S.-China relationship. The U.S. is worried about instability, as we said, that could come from attacks in cyberspace and outer space. What's behind this new approach from Washington? And what do you think is behind China's new efforts and its activities with regard to the nuclear question? Well, I think there's a couple of different pieces behind all of this. On the American side, it's been said, of course, that generals are always planning on fighting the last war. If that's true, diplomats are always trying to renegotiate the last treaty. And in this regard, U.S.-Soviet relations during the Cold War were dominated by arms control negotiations, in part because Actually, there wasn't that much else to the U.S.-Soviet relationship. It's not like there was trade. It wasn't like there was tourism. It wasn't like there were student exchanges. So U.S.-China relations have, ironically enough, benefited by having all these other avenues of dialogue and literally billions of dollars worth of trade. So arms control has not played a very large role. This is now coming to the forefront, however, because of the substantial Chinese nuclear buildup, not just modernization. And this past year has seen the discovery of some 300 silos being built out in western China. A sobering thought experiment. If we assume one missile per silo, if we assume five warheads per missile, which is not a particularly high number, the Chinese DF-41, which is already in production, can easily accommodate five warheads, then the newly discovered silos would have as many warheads as the new START agreement allows the U.S. and Russia. That's in addition to the nuclear weapons that China is building to put into their new ballistic missile submarines, into the DF-41s that are already currently deployed as mobile systems across China. So China has gone from a distant, also ran in terms of number of nuclear weapons and warheads, to a country that feels a substantially larger force than either the French or the British and is going to be rapidly approaching the deployable numbers of the U.S. and Russia. So in that context, it should not be surprising that the U.S. is hoping to engage China in nuclear arms control negotiations. It'll be interesting to see whether the Russians take this growing Chinese number as a threat as well. Richard Fontaine, your take on this nuclear buildup and the U.S. approach to counter it. Well, the Chinese are coming from way behind the numbers of warheads that the United States and Russia have. So the Pentagon, in its report that came out a few weeks ago, projected that China may have as many as a thousand nuclear weapons by the end of this decade. It would still be far behind the United States. That's not great source of comfort for those uh, military planners on the United States. And I think the first task of the administration is to understand, if they can understand, more about the Chinese intent for what appears to be a quite rapid buildup of their capabilities. 
you know, the administration has said that they do not anticipate arms control negotiations with China anytime soon. It's virtually impossible to imagine what kind of arms control agreement could obtain specifically on the nuclear side, either one that would cap the Chinese numbers, for example, at a level way lower than what the United States has or the United States accepting China growing its number to what we have. But that said, there's a number of other aspects to this. And I think more interesting on the American side than even the sheer numbers of nuclear warheads is the other technologies, including new delivery vehicles like the hypersonic test that took place apparently over the summer. And And I think the first task on the American side is trying to understand a bit more from the Chinese, if they can understand more, about what the intent is behind the buildup of these new capabilities and how they fit into the Chinese national security policy writ large. As we close, Dean Chang, do you see any points of convergence coming out of this summit or going forward? particularly on climate or North Korea. Of course, she was a no-show at the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow, but analysts say these are two issues on which the United States and China could see some points of convergence. Well, I certainly don't expect to see much convergence when it comes to North Korea. The North Korean threat to South Korea has hardly abated. We see little evidence of liberalization on the part of Kim Jong-un, and we don't see the Chinese pushing for economic liberalization on the part of Kim. If anything, the Chinese continue to help break sanctions imposed by the United Nations on North Korea, providing food and energy. So I don't see Washington and Beijing seeing eye to eye with regards to North Korea, if only because China doesn't see North Korean nuclear weapons developments as a threat to China. And that means we have a fundamentally different perspective. And just a quick word on the climate change. Well, as President Biden pointed out, the Chinese and Russians showed up at COP26 virtually with no plans at all to really engage in climate change efforts. And until Beijing is prepared to do so, and I believe they still have over 30 coal-fired power plants under construction, which means that a substantial increase, not decrease in greenhouse gas emissions in the long term, there's not much evidence that they're going to be actually doing anything as opposed to making all sorts of promises. And Richard Fontaine, you get the last word. You made some excellent points with regard to China's perception that the United States is a declining power. And yet when they had the spotlight, they didn't do too well during the uh, pandemic. Of course, human rights, we're looking at Hong Kong and very bad omen for Taiwan. But with regard to any points of convergence, whether on climate change or North Korea, do you see any points of convergence between the U.S. and China? There's a couple of theoretical points of convergence on climate. Obviously, both sides have an interest in limiting climate change. John Kerry, the climate envoy, reached an agreement with his Chinese counterpart a while back that China would no longer build coal fire power plants outside of China. That's something that's relatively modest. There was a joint statement between the United States and China basically saying, you know, climate change is real and important and we need to kind of work at this. So given the tenor of the relationship, that sort of surprising. But again, a statement is a statement. So there are areas in which both countries do have an interest, but, you know, they both have an interest, for example, in coronavirus going away. And we've seen no cooperation. In fact, the pandemic has become just another vector of competition. So I think that while it is true 
that U.S.-China relations are, as one often hears, a mixture of cooperation and competition. The competition is very real and indefinite, and the cooperation is sort of theoretically available and much harder to accomplish than just the existence of overlapping interests might suggest. So I think what we're looking at is a long period of intense competition between the United States and China into the future with some flickers of cooperation here and there. And more would be better, but I don't think we can bound our hopes up too highly and what actually come out of that. And just one really fast last question, Dean Cheng. Beijing Olympics next year, President Biden said he might announce a diplomatic boycott of the Winter Olympics. Would that be a good idea? It would certainly send a useful signal uh, without hurting the prospects of athletes, many of whom have spent a good chunk of their life preparing for the Olympics. I think it's notable here that at this point, the only world leader who has said they will attend the Winter Olympics is Vladimir Putin. And that joining Putin (laughs) on stage would be a signal, perhaps an unintended one. I also think that the recent controversy involving Peng Shui is part of the broader issue that China wants to become a sports superpower in terms of being a venue, in terms of being a source of income. And the fact that the Women's Tennis Association has now taken a stance saying, we will not hold any games in China until you come clean about this athlete. I'm afraid that's just about all the time we have on this edition of Encounter. I'd like to thank my guests, Richard Fontaine, CEO of the Center for a New American Security, and Dean Chang, Senior Research Fellow in the Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on The Voice of America. 